0: Drink and Read presents War and Peace, Volume 1, Part 2, Chapters 1 through 10. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing but making Russian novels even longer and better. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, and we're about to read some good shit. Welcome back to Drink and Read, currently making our way through War and Peace. And last episode, we totally concluded Volume 1, Part 1 of the novel, the first peace section of War and Peace. Today we get on to, if the opening has included you in, the war section. It's going to be heavy, but we're going to have some fun nonetheless. Before we put on our boots and get out our guns to fight that rascal Napoleon, I am going to introduce a new section, which is essentially an old section where I admit my mistakes and flaws to the audience. We're going to refer to this as the appendices, because if you're reading this edition of War and Peace, there is a hell of a lot of appendices. This is where I'm going to point out some things that I may have goofed on, flubbed on, and made some mistakes, because after all, if we don't learn from our mistakes, how are we going to grow as human beings, right? And wouldn't Tolstoy want that to happen? the first major mistake that I made is I didn't reference any of the appendices. And no, I'm not really going to do that. Like I said in our initial episode, I'm not a history boofa. I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty unless it is prevalent to the main action of the novel because this novel is already a beefy boy in itself. And if you want to read the appendices, go on ahead and be more worldly. But baby, I ain't a history teacher. That's not what I'm here for unless it's super duper important. So Please understand. Second, I'm sorry for my stutters and my foibles and my my little mannerisms that come across. I am a nervous Nelly when it comes to speaking to myself alone in my kitchen as I record this. So please forgive me if I stumble and and stagger in what I have to say because that's typically the way that I'm speaking on these things and I I apologize in advance. Thank you for putting up with that. Other than that, I thought that the episode I recorded last was one of the best things that I ever recorded so I am alive, awake, alert, enthusiastic when going into this heavier section of the novel. Since this is Drink and Read, what am I drinking, baby? Well, there's nothing better to drink than a nice white claw with the bros who are going to war i currently have a white claw hard seltzer mango five percent alcohol volume delicious and oh do you hear that baby yeah some asmr white claw fan not the first time i drank it not the last time you're gonna hear about it on the podcast there are some times when it is okay to be a basic me Without further ado, let's get to our first chapter of the day. Volume 1, Part 2, Chapter 1, aka Sherman! Oh, we're not reading Morgan Mitchell's Gone with the Wind? Hmm, never mind. Just when you thought it was safe to go outside, just when you thought you knew all of those pieces, characters, nine different names, bam, Tolstoy hits you. We're in war now, baby. Get ready for a whole nother set, buckaroo. Picture it. October 1805, Austria. And we meet Commander-in-Chief Kutuzov. Now, something interesting about this fellow is that he is a real-time historical figure that Tolstoy has implemented into the novel. This is where the main derision in the novel came from. When the book first came out, people were baffled that Tolstoy was referencing real people in addition to these fictional characters that he had created in this spiral of events that culminated into the novel's creation. It's almost like if we take a major player in today's game, like... Oprah Winfrey and she pops up and you're like oh yeah I know Oprah I'm aware of her her many triumphs and victories it's a bit of whiplash but it's good whiplash in the fact that he doesn't have to set up these characters as much as his fictional characters Commander Kutuzov is on his way to view this infantry regiment, which is looking dusted and busted, Mama. They are dressed to the zeros, not even the ones, the zeros. And their regiment leader is currently nervously trying to anticipate Kutuzov's reaction to what they're wearing. They're saying, would it look better that we look in, we're, we're in rags after a 25-mile march, or should we dress to the nines in order to keep up appearances? Uh, they do decide to dress to the nines, as it's better to bow to Mama much as opposed to too little, so we even see in the military that these fools are keeping up appearances, they don't want to keep their boots dirty, they don't want to get their cravats in a twist, you know, their epaulets in a a, a snaggle. And we must pause to mention that these are some of the boys that we've come to recognize throughout the course of the novel. Of course, we're going to meet Dolokhov again, Anatoly again, Nikolai Boris. And these are our poor little rich boys going off to war. They don't know how to act, but they do know how to dress. So even then, the bourgeois has influenced the militaristic approach of the Russians. The commander of this regiment spends all day and all night making sure that every button shines. However, he has failed to notice a flaw in his plan to make a good impression on the first chance he gets, because all of these soldiers' boots are falling apart because none of them can possibly survive the amount of miles that they have trekked, but Austria hasn't issued any of the replacements, so... He figures that there's no way that Kutuzov will get upset over this. There's nothing they can do about it. It's outside of their control. Just as they're all spiffied up, a messenger arrives and says, No, honey, Kutuzov wants us begraggled and bedrecked and dressed in rags, be, because he wants to give the Austrians impression that his army has tired from all of the fighting and that they can't join them immediately at the front lines of the battle yet. So already, Kutuzov is a clever tactician. So they're going down the list, checking it twice, making sure that all these uh, Russian soldiers look nice and not naughty. And one man is sticking out because his overcoat is blue and not gray. So he's sticking out like a, a, a robin's egg amongst this gravel. And who is it? None other than, is he going to jump from there? <sighs> it's our boy Dolokov who is fighting in this regiment. And he takes some lip with this commander. The commander is like, go change your outfit, hunty. And Dolikov says, I'll do it, but I won't be taking any lip from you, Buster, I'm too poor to afford the right kind of coat. Dolikov is a standout character in this section because he's essentially pulling a Paris is Burning with What's the problem? I give it to you every ball. Why are you gagging so? Now, you would expect this commander to go off on Dolikov, but instead he says along the lines of, I like your moxie, sassafras, keep it up, and Dolikov gets a gold star for the day. End of chapter. Chapter two, Kutuzov arrives to inspect this regiment, and who should be at his side but his little adjutant, None other than Andrei Bolkonsky. Mr. Bokonski, moving your way up in the ranks. We love to see it. We love to see it, Andre. To reference Tim Gunn on Project Runway. Kutuzov is a very seasoned general, and as he's walking around, those little details that this other commander didn't think that he would notice, he immediately picks up on. He is not one to ignore the small details in life. And, I mean, for a military guy, I'm kind of into Kutuzov. Not into the whole war in general as a concept, but Kutuzov, if you're gonna get someone to do the job right... Get Kutuzov. As Kutuzov, Andre, and the rest of the Glitter Mafia walk around inspecting the soldiers, Andre and his buddies are cracking up because this one commander is ass-kissing to maximum intensity... Uh, Kutuzov himself, and it's just a funny sight to see whenever someone in a high ranking position is met by someone in an even higher ranking position. Small fish, even big upon. Kutuzov is remembering that he has to remember to do something, and that's what Andre is there for. As an adjutant, he's basically the secretary for the commander in chief, and he keeps track of the daily minutiae. And he reminds Kutuzov that he must talk to Dolokhov for his little outbursts that he's had before. And Dolokhov is going to get into a smidge of trouble or at least slightly embarrassed in this situation. We are supposed to take that that entire burn the bear scenario with him, Anatoly, and Pierre has gotten him into such trouble, such gossip, that he's been demoted from a higher rank in the military to a lower grunt in this. And Dolokhov is very upset with this, but he suggests that... He's, he thinks he's uh, tough enough to win back his ranking again. There he goes with that death wish. First it's jumping out the window. Now it's send me at those Frenchmen. I'll tear them limb from limb in order to get the power that I had before. It turns out that Delikov, in his frustration of being demoted, has been hitting the bottle a little bit too hard. And I understand, boy. I understand what it's like to hit that bottle. But there is a time and there is a place, especially when you are on the front lines or going to be, of a war and your life is in jeopardy. He's a bit of a, a an angry alcoholic and constantly drinking. The commander warns Kutuzov about this, but Kutuzov shrugs it out as, this boy has something to prove. Let's see what he's got in him. The soldiers all love Kutuzov because he seems to know exactly what he's doing. He even has a cool little eye patch because he's blind in one eye, and instead of mocking him for it, they say, oh, that's kind of badass. I want an eye patch, too. I could be rocking it. What if I wore an eye patch on both eyes? Well, then you wouldn't be able to see, sweetie. Oh... The regiment starts marching and Dolokhov is becoming a bit of ce- a celebrity after talking to Kutuzov and surviving the interaction coming off as a better uh, soldier in the process that he's got something to prove and some of his buddies from that previous drinking party with Anatol Karagin come up to him and try to get into his good graces again but Dolokhov has his mindset that he's he's pissed off about it. He wants to get back what was stolen from him, and he wants to prove that he can fight. So Dolokhov, you know, he's got that chip on the shoulder. It's as big as a boulder. Miss Elkama Dolokhov. Man, I'm referencing a lot of musicals today. Into chapter three, Kutuzov and this Austrian general are having a very similar situation to Anna Mikhailovna and Catherine in the previous episode's chapter. They're trying to outpolite one another with outranking each other they're both the same rank, so they can't kind of take the high ground they're going oh no I'm going to lead this battle and your troops are going to take the front line oh no that's not gonna happen exactly how I think it's going to happen this Austrian general wants Kutuzov's troops to go assist another general by the name of General Mack Mack the Knife Um, not the same person just another theater reference for y'all and by Getting the Russians there, he wants them to take the front line as in they're going to be the first ones to get shot in this scenario. And Mack also wants to take the credit of leading Kutuzov's troops. And Kutuzov ain't having that. Kutuzov also strongly hints that General Mack is not up to the standards that he has expected in his military career and that Mack is choking on this initial fight with Napoleon's army. In order to kind of suss out what's what he sends Andre on a personal mission to send a letter uh, detailing everything that him and this Austrian commander has talked about in this scenario. Andre is very excited because this is his first big boy job in the army being an adjutant. and it turns out that he has this job because Kutuzov and Prince Bolkonsky, Andre's dad, were best time war buddies just going to show that even in the army, Nepotism and bureaucracy never fails. Just as Andre is saddling up his horse and getting ready to deliver the message to General Mack, we see this extremely bandaged and bloody man stumble in and he announces himself as, bum bum bum, it's General Mack and he's been completely destroyed by Napoleon's army and he managed to escape with a head wound and travel this far in order to intercept the previous forces to warn about them, warn them about Napoleon. The news sinks in and hits everyone differently. Kutuzov is stunned in silence just thinking about the future and andre on the other hand is like wow napoleon seems super cool i can't wait to fight him and outbest him like andre is a fucking anime character here or something so he he gets all excited and he goes off to tell his war buddies and finds them mocking general mac making fun of him losing the battle making fun of him getting a head injury and traveling over here and the way he looks and everything andre gets fucking pissed off and he gives the troy speech from high school musical essentially saying that all of the Russian we're in this together and if we fail we all fail and if we succeed then we can continue on to high school musical too so does everyone understand and andre is expecting his friends to be like you know what andre you are right you are the only one with common sense here but instead of doing that they simply walk away and andre is pissed he goes from a high to a pissy state end of chapter as chapter 4 opens, we're going to let Dolikov lick his wounds in the interior delusions lounge, and we're going to flash sideways to another major character. We've got Nikolai Rostov, Natasha's brother. He's currently rooming with his commander, Denyazov, and the two are almost BFFs. Nikolai in this little squadron is actually loving life. He loves his horse, he loves the guy who takes care of his horse. They have a unique little friendly banter between them. He just seems like an overall good guy who hasn't been tainted by war yet, this Nikolai Rostov, but we will see how that changes. Everyone here knows about Mac's defeat already, so some time has passed, but Nikolai's squadron is in Poland, whereas Mac and our other company with Andre and Dolokhov, are in Austria. Denyazov arrives to the barracks and he seems very sad. And he also speaks in this translation. Well, let's read what he says and I can try and pronounce it. Um, ah, really? And I blew everything last night at Braddell like a son of a bitch, uh, swallowing his Rs. So he has a really thick accent. Another lieutenant is in their rooms by the name of Telenin, and no one likes this guy. He's a complete another asshole and doesn't know that he's an asshole. He starts talking to Nikolai about learning how to shoe a horse correctly, but even Nikolai, innocent young Nikolai, cannot stand him. Danyazov has been so sad because he gambled away a lot of money last night as these soldiers had nothing else to do besides waiting for the war and gambling. He's lost a good chunk of change, and he hides what's going to be collected that morning underneath his pillow, and Nikolai sees this. Denyazov is also writing a love letter, and this love letter is the first of many that we will see throughout the novel, and it is beautiful just for the few sentences we hear. He refers to all of humankind as children of dust, and then when we go to sleep, we dream, and in our dreams, we are God. Beautiful poetic imagery coming from this militaristic mind. Tolstoy is always so surprising us. And just as the sergeant or whoever comes around to collect the gambling debts from last night, Denyazov realizes that his money is gone. Nikolai says that it's only the two of us and that one jerk in the room, so I'm pretty sure I know where your money left. It was that greedy son of a bitch to Lenin. Nikolai takes it upon himself to take a card out of Anna Mikhailovna's book and become detective for this chapter and immediately knows where Telenin is. He is drinking his sorrows away at the town bar. If I could extend the name of this podcast, it would be Drink and Read and Cry because what do you do at the bar but drink, read, and sometimes cry. You also talk. Don't eat the bar nuts, though. Nikolai shows up at the bar and sees Telenin drinking, and he confronts him without using words, gives him an old stare down, and Telenin originally is playing the innocent game, but does break down and confess to stealing. Nikolai wasn't sure if he was right, but now that Talennan is in front of him, a puddle on the floor, he's positive he was correct. Telenin tries to bring up an excuse. He never had a mother and a father, so he doesn't exactly know how to live his life in the best regards, but Nikolai isn't buying any of that bullshit and demands that the money is returned back to Denizov. This grown-ass man commander then runs out of the bar in tears and Nikolai feels extremely embarrassed for this grown man. He did not expect things to go this way, but also, dude, are you okay? Just return the money. You don't need to go crying. Chapter 5, all the officers that witness this are trying to get Nikolai to apologize to, to Lenin. Staff Captain Kirsten, as in Kirsten Dunce, but a dude, actually went up to the bigwigs and told them everything that happened, said that Nikolai was not in his grounds to call out to Lenin in this endeavor, and Nikolai goes off the handle. He says, I was supposed to do everything that I did do. And is someone calling me a liar because that's just not the case? Of course Nikolai is right in our eyes, but apparently the big wids see this as a disgrace because Nikolai is lower in rank than to Lenin, and if a scandal like this got out then it would ruin the reputation of their infantry. But to me it seems like these guys are a bunch of gossip gals who just don't want bad word to get out because someone's feelings got hurt. It really doesn't fit into the whole machismo nature of the army. Just like that, Talon is let go from the army, but Nikolai is still asked to apologize in front of the commanders, and initially he is a young hothead who says, you know, I, I don't think I did any wrong and I shouldn't have to apologize because I was right, and then because everyone's an emotional mess in this book, he gets really upset and he starts to cry. Oh, poor baby Nikolai Rostov. Oh, he just needs a hug. He feels bad about ruining someone's career, even though he did the right thing. Suddenly, a messenger comes in and says that this regiment is going to be joining the front lines in Austria. And since these guys have been doing nothing but sitting around loving horses, crying and exposing each other's feelings, they're excited to go to war. They're excited to take a few bullets, even though they do not realize that they will be on the front lines and the bullets will be aimed directly at them. And our chapter ends. Onwards to chapter six. We're back with Kutuzov's troops in Austria, and he's assigned his regiment to burn the neighboring bridges in order to make the army's job of crossing rivers a lot harder. See, Kevin Spacey, you asshole? There is some good that can come from burning bridges. I bet you wish you knew that now, huh? Kutuzov is on the front lines. Napoleon's troops are just over the neighboring hill. They're this close. And what are these guys doing? They're having lunch. They're drinking tea. Mm. Also, they're joking about breaking into a neighboring Italian nunnery in order to rape some of the nuns? Just boys being boys, I guess. Huh. Disgusting. Both sides are firing shots at one another to measure distance to see if they can actually hit each other with the bullets, and doesn't happen. So these guys are a little bit skittish, but right now they're still in the clear. There's no way that any force in this army could attack each other chapter seven this other jughead commander nesvitsky is there trying to cross a bridge and ordering around obviously the poorer peasant class soldiers that are there but they pay him no mind they think he's a joke and his horse is forced up against the side of this destroyed bridge as everyone else is crossing it's kind of funny (laughs) these soldiers are talking about everything but war food women what they're gonna spend money on when the war is over Mm. Get your priorities straight! I feel like Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. We are going to die! Does no one understand that? Am I the only one? A German family crosses this bridge while the getting's good and there's two young ladies in there and of course these men are catcalling, hey baby, like New York construction workers trying to get them a little something-something, affection. One of them gets an apple. Then one of Napoleon's cannonballs splashes in the water next to the bridge and all these men start to stand on chairs and go, eek, ah, eek! Ooh, Something that you would not expect from these highly trained military veterans. Novitski and the other commanders are trying to calm these boys down from getting almost wet and shot with a cannonball. And who should appear but the guy from the last chapter pulling some Game of Thrones teleportation bullshit. It's Denizov. And he's angry that the mob has formed and tells them to get their act together because the battle has begun, baby. Ding, ding. Chapter 8, the battle begins, and everyone has crossed this bridge except for Nikolai's regiment, whose job is to burn the bridge behind them so the French can't use it. And the French are closing in, they're getting closer and closer, trying to take shots. Bullets and cannonballs are flying, but none have yet hit any of our Russian boys. Nikolai is itching to fight him some Frenchmen, but Denizov says no, because he wants to leave this battle without any casualties. He wants to cross the bridge, delay the French, and get out of there. Nisvitsky rides up and asks, Gentlemen, why isn't my bridge burned yet? Someone has to go out there and do it, but no one is dumb enough to do this just yet, except our boy Nikolai, despite the fact that the French are slowly walking towards this bridge and firing at them, and the closer they get, the more likely they're going to get hit. Nikolai does this because he is excited for a fight and to service his country like any dumb person. As soon as he goes to light this bridge aflame, people start dropping, and these commanders are watching from afar, making small talk, Oh, another one's down oh there goes two I think two got shot right there oh if I was a czar I would never go to war so all talk no action Nikolai is freaking out because this is his first major experience with war and people dying around him he didn't expect war to be this violent they did not teach it to him like this to which I say Nikolai what did you expect it's called war people go to war He is very frightened because this boy is practically still a teenager, but he does a good job of covering up his own emotions and bottles them up. Not supposed to do that. Very toxic masculinity here. And manages to light the bridge on fire and escapes back to his infantry. Chapter 9 slows things down and gives us a bigger picture of the things happening. So the Russians are fleeing from the French along the Damieres. And the French, every time they catch up with the Russians, they're attacking the soldiers that are in the back or the rear guard. Kutuzov is proving his salt as a general in this fight along the Danube because he stays two steps ahead of the French. At the same time, he's trying to raise morale by picking off any other French troops that are in smaller groups than the larger army in order to boost his own side's morale. A happy army that thinks they're winning is gonna do better and have higher expectations <laughs> of themselves than an army that admits defeat and loss. In one battle, we learn that Andre was assisting the Austrian general Schmidt, but Schmidt died, and Andre had a close call with death when the horse he was riding gets shot out from under him and a bullet nearly hits him. But for his bravery Andre is rewarded with delivering a message to the Austrian emperor and tell him the news about some of their victories. Andre is very excited like by this because it makes him look good and he gets a break from roughing it with the army while at the same time hoping for a promotion for his good work. He goes to the small city of Brunn, where the Council of Austria is located now, with all of this going on, the war outside of their communities, and he's expecting the red carpet to be rolled out for him, and that is simply not going to happen, young Andre. You are not going to be a VIP. You are just going to be a normal soldier and treated as such. He delivers the news not to the Emperor, but to the Secretary of Defense, the Minister of War, and instead of saying, oh, this is wonderful, this guy has never seen war before in his life, and says, I guess that sounds good. Eh? Andre is pissed because he nearly took a bullet just for this, and the Minister advises him to stick around because maybe, maybe the Emperor of Austria will want to talk to him tomorrow. Maybe. If we could squeeze you in. In our final chapter of the episode, chapter 10, Andre is staying in Brune and he meets a new friend by the name of Bilibin, who's a diplomat. And Andre is still pissed off that he has not received the royal treatment upon delivering news of this very small victory to the guy who's friends with the Russian emperor. And Bilibin suggests that this isn't Russia, sweetie. You're not going to get the same treatment because us Austrians want us to see. Our Austrian men win these French battles single-handedly. They aren't going to share the glory. The big news that's mentioned briefly in this chapter is that Vienna has just fallen. It was conquered by Napoleon, and it's the capital of Austria, so it is a big thing. Andre hears this news and is totally sad because his minor battle doesn't feel like it's worth anything in this greater war and everyone else is practically admitting defeat that the french have won he goes to bed he's really sad about it and he wakes up with a renewed energy to try his best in the next battle in order to stop napoleon it irks me that our goth prince andre Bolkonsky has childlike innocence when going to bed at the end of this chapter he goes to bed as if a child would and dreamt of the prospects of war He's excited to kill people. He has yet to experience life, and he's got a storm coming, honey. Well, with that, we reach the end of this episode of Drink and Read. Of course, tune in next week when we continue our read-through with Volume 1, Part 2, Chapters 11 through 21. We're going to finish up our first war section, and what can I say? We are going to get some near-death experiences that will definitely traumatize some of these boys and turn them into men. Um, We will get some beautiful imagery when someone is looking up at the sky and asking himself... Why would anyone in this world want to kill me? Little innocent me. Interestingly enough, that's the same thought I have when I have a little bit too much alcohol and pass out staring up at my ceiling. Anyways, thank you, loyal readers, for continuing your patronage and support i of course am jonathan kwiatkowski if you like what you hear you can follow some of my other podcasts i have the first nightcaps at the theater with my co-host matt cabrera and mark zebro jr where we look at bad movies and have a few drinks and and you can look at my second pride and joy with my other friend daniel ryan as we take a look at some anime and anime adjacent movies and anime was not a mistake um, besides that, of course, remember if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach out to me on Drink and Read Pod on Instagram. Till then, dear readers, proche, and remember to drink and read responsibly. Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on Drink and Read Pod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.